0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, SixSense. SixSense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Today I'm talking with Dr. Wesley Wark, a longtime student of both the real world of intelligence and also the popular culture of intelligence. Uh, Dr. Wark is a professor of international relations at the University of Toronto and is also a visiting professor at the University of Ottawa. In fact, I'm sitting in his office in Ottawa right now. Uh, and uh, in addition to his academic endeavors, he is presently contemplating writing a spy novel. So, uh, uh, Wesley, it's a a, a delight to have you here, and thank you so much for joining us at the International Spy Museum. My pleasure, Mark. Uh, Tell me, uh, the British were the inventors, as we generally think about it, of the spy novel. When did that happen, and why was it that the British, as opposed to, say, the Americans or some other... Uh, country uh, in invented
1: uh, modern spy fiction. It's a great question, I mean, and we're in the fortunate um, position, I think, of being able to pinpoint the, the the actual date of birth of of the spy fiction genre in ways that you can't always do uh, in terms of historical events. Um, it did it, it, the first spy novels really were were written by British authors and published by British publishing houses in the in the years between 1900 and 1914, and there are a small number of them, but they're very important in terms of, of the way in which they lay down the foundations for, for the genre. Now, why Britain, why British authors? I think there are a number of reasons for this. One is that at the time, we have to remember that that London and and Britain really was the centre of the English-speaking world of publishing and dissemination of books. Um, so so there was, the industry was there, um, it was It was a place um, uh, that was suffering from its own angst about both domestic politics and international relations. Britain, after all, at the turn of the twentieth century was the world 's superpower still, although there was a lot of competition out there and and the sense of the stability of the international system was being, beginning to fall apart, and people were already uh, having these forebodings about the coming of, of war so there was a, the kind of anxiety come kind of fear. Uh, that you really need to kind of set the scene for uh, a receptive uh, popular culture audience that might take to this new genre. Because spy fiction really did play on these early kind of fears about declining power, the possibility of surprise attacks, new technology, the possibility of internal subversion. So, so all the kinds of things that seem to royal international politics were particularly focused in Britain. Uh, Britain had you know, the, the uh, center of gravity of the world's publishing industry. Uh, and there was what I call a, a new media available for um, writers to kind of take advantage of. This new media in, in terms of the year 1900 or between 1900 and 1914, were things like lending libraries, mass circulation uh, newspapers that were that were looking for stories to publish that would attract ever more readers to them. Uh, and there was, in fact, a, a wave of um, increasing literacy in in um, newly industrialized countries, like like Britain and some of the European countries, so there was an audience that could read that was um, interested in international politics and that and was spend, ready for these that stories. would spend money on these stories. And they, so, it would be very expensive. They could either go to the lending library and borrow these books for free or they would buy their you know, very cheap uh, mass circulation newspaper or they would buy a paperback novel so so the the industry the circumstances. Um, that kind of environment of, of fear and anxiety that surrounded Britain's declining potentially status as a European and global superpower, I think all contributed to the birth of the genre. It still needed somebody to kick it off. It needed somebody to take the idea of uh, having a spy at the center of a story and a spy at the center of a plot because, you know, after all, the world was simply not familiar with the. the the idea of the spy, or the notion of, of uh, espionage operations, and one of the real peculiarities of the birth of spy fiction is that, as this handful of writers, uh, some, most of whom won't be known, uh, won't be remembered, but there are people like Rudyard Kipling that, that contribute to this, uh, and, and Erskine Childers, Joseph Conrad, um, so a handful of well-known authors, but as, as well as some sort of mass mass production authors that we've uh, forgotten uh, understandably, like William McHugh. But this this small band of, of authors can can seize on this um, idea, knowing that there is a potential audience out there, and all they have to do is kind of invent the spy character, invent the spy plot, and they can plug it into a kind of existing angst, and, and there's a readership out there. Now, what, what was the m- sort of moral value uh, assigned
0: to the act of spying and the act of espionage? I've, I've read work by a, a, a scholar who's looked at early American spy fiction, and uh, she has argued that Americans, you know, in the, in the late 19th and early 20th century, to the extent that we had spy fiction, all, which was minimally, um, spies weren't. Operating secretly or clandestinely, she talks about a, a character who goes around announcing that he's a spy and wearing a, if I recall correctly, a red, white and blue uniform. It's, it's much more like a superhero, actually. Uh, and, and that was because spying and skulking in the shadows was seen as dishonorable and un-American. Did the British have the same concern about the uh, the, the sort of the moral value of what the, the the heroes of these books were doing? These early books. There was a
1: bit of that. I mean, I think the, the American dime novel um, literature that that occasionally fastens on the, the figure of the spy in the late nineteenth century is, is quite extraordinary uh, because it does suggest that you know spies can be gentlemanly characters, but they're going to have to uh, you know, operate above ground and proclaim the nature of their motives. In, in the British case, Britain was an older power, you know, more attuned to the Machiavellian world of international politics with a sort of different tradition of, of foreign policy and indeed domestic politics from the United States. So, so it was readier, I think, uh, as a society to embrace the idea of the spy skulking in the shadows. Uh, impacting on the you know the great events in, in the world. That said, there was still a, clearly a Victorian sensibility uh, that was a bit of an inhibitor um, in terms of, of you know thinking about how to portray the figure figure of the spy. And in, in one of the famous examples, Erskine Childers' early spy novel, *The Riddle of the Sands*, which is really a terrific novel. *The Riddle of the Sands* is, is really a story about a, a potential secret German invasion that employs spies to to gain an advantage against against Britain. Um, in Children's novel, he has a, a character, a very sort of upright British gentleman who's, who's on, on vacation from the British Foreign Office by the name of Davies, who, who uh, finds himself embroiled in a spy plot and initially is very um, uncomfortable about it, um, uncomfortable about the morality, uncomfortable about the fact that he is a gentleman from a, a British... Um, society that was quite rigidly class based at that time, maybe still is uh, would ha- would have to kind of uh, consort with with the kind of people that he wouldn 't normally do, so he had to kind of break the barriers of those inhibitions and and childers puts him through the paces in trying to kind of examine the morality of espionage to some degree and and uh, this character in, in riddle of the sands eventually is able to proclaim in the novel that although the world of espionage is not gentlemanly and has a dubious morality, nevertheless, there's a, there's a higher calling here. It's, it's patriotism. It's service to the nation. It's it's giving, a, giving the uh, country a proper notice of warning, a proper alarm about the things that are threatening its security out there in the world. And
0: would it be fair to say that there was a sense in these early British spy novels that that we were really in some way holding off the barbarians, uh, you know, that, that, that our opponents here are not as civilized as us, they're not as moral as us, uh, um, and that you know, really sort of all that is right and good in the you know, very deep sense was, was at risk, and that's why it was important that these spies were important in protecting
1: us. There is a, there is a bit of that, that sense, and, and you know, the early spy fiction is quite xenophobic uh, and, and what we would call racist, I think, today, um uh, And it did portray kind of foreign opponents and foreign enemies uh in a in a very dark light uh almost as subs- subspecies and you know there are, there are um, suggestions in the early spy fiction that what what Britain is really facing is the sort of survival of world civilization led by and dominated by british ideals uh and that and that this survival is kind of it, it is really on a on a knife edge so there are there are dangerous enemies out there that don't share Britain's kind of code of conduct and, and high morality, and they have to be combated in the shadows. They're not, only, um, they're not only not behaving according to the codes of gentlemanly conduct in international politics, so fiction writers would have it, but they're, they're also trying to achieve surprise. They're trying to... Um, uh, you know, deploy new kinds of weapons of war, and that's one of the features of early spy fiction: the way in which it it presents us with new technologies of, of warfare. And you know, there's some very, very funny scenes about motorcycles and and aeroplanes and early cars and so on that populate these these novels. And they're they're you know they're clearly very thrilling um, uh, parts of the of the plot to have these pieces of technology brought in. So there, there's the possibility of surprise uh, lurking out there on the part of underhanded enemies. And that, that's part of the thrill as, part of, as well as part of the warning uh, that's, that, that is packaged in this first generation of spy novels.
0: You mentioned in passing a couple of minutes ago one author who is largely forgotten these days but who is actually rather important in an interesting sort of way, and that was William Lecue. Mm. Do you want to talk a little bit about who William LeCue was and, and why, he, why he was important, despite the literary uh, shortcomings perhaps of his work?
1: I mean, there were certainly literary shortcomings, uh, and, and even his own, William McHugh's own publishers, uh, you know, had, a, had difficulty keeping up with him. Uh, one of the reasons he was important simply is that he, he, um, he got spy fiction off the ground in terms of quantity. If you're going to establish a new genre, which is what I think spy fiction really was at the turn of the 20th century, you, you have to have people sort of pumping out the literature. It doesn't necessarily matter how good the literature is, but you have to have a, a sort of quantity of it to make an impact uh, on, on popular culture. And, and Lequeux was a leading example of that. He wasn't, he wasn't alone. Um, one of his biographers uh, proclaims uh, in, in his study that that he attempted to count the number of William Q novels that were published in Lequeux's lifetime gave up at 250 or something like that. So it was, you know, he was churning them out in, a, in an extraordinary way. And it was part of the sort of industrialized process of, of the mass production of literature that, that spy fiction uh, depended on. But Lequeux in in his own way... Um, was an opportunist Uh, he'd written in other genres before the spy fiction idea came to him Um, but what he liked about spy fiction was that that it was a world in which he could enter uh, nicely and fantasize about uh, and sometimes he had different difficulties, clearly, in, in distinguishing his own sort of fantasies from the realities of his own life. He liked to proclaim in his novels, and, and this is, this goes to the, the early phenomenon of the spy faction, that, that what he was really telling were thinly disguised true stories in which he had played a personal role as a kind of European trotting spy master. Um, so the, the, the spy theme, I think, appealed to him uh he was someone who was who who was prepared to to kind of churn out these these novels and he, he was also attracted to them as a as a vehicle for warning. Uh, he really wanted to get a message out through his spy fiction uh, that Britain was a, a, imperiled—a message to the government to, to and take to action British society. Absolutely, and and you know one of the the great ironies of the, the birth of British spy fiction, which uh, is really the birth of spy fiction altogether, is that uh, the first generation of spy fiction writers were in invent, were really inventing an idea about espionage and its practice and conduct and its threats that preceded the reality. And in the British case, what this comes down to is that that first generation of spy fiction writers creates a spy panic in Britain, uh, which leads the government ultimately to decide there's a real espionage threat to the UK, and that they have to do something about it by way of creating new institutions of, of espionage and counterintelligence. And that led to what we know as MI5 and MI6. And MI5 and MI6 come, in, come directly out of that process, and willing the queue the spy writer, the mass producer of spy fiction, is called as an expert witness to a secret internal inquiry that the British government... Uh, Ron to try and determine whether there really is an espionage threat. So he's taken as a figure of authority, even though he's a mass producer of, of second-rate spy, spy literature, he's taken as a figure of authority. He really knows what's going on out there in the shadowy world of, of espionage. And, and while the government was initially very skeptical about this, they themselves fell prey to a spy panic. And in 1909, they create the, the predecessors of MI5 and MI6, and Lequeux is there on the scene. Now, World War One caused um,
0: profound changes in how Europeans thought about war and the military. Uh, did spy fiction change in the uh, after World War One? Was the spy fiction of the interwar period uh, different from this, um, you know, borderline xenophobic uh, kind of uh, Darwinian world that you've described, uh, Childers and, and some of these, and and uh, and Lequeux and some of these others writing in?
1: I'd say two things about the spy fiction of the immediate interwar period—that is, the, the the 1920s. One is that um, it, it retreated, I think, from some of the prominence that it had before 1914. A little bit of the energy went out of it, as indeed went out of European civilization as a whole, given you know the devastation of the First World War. There were less people writing, less people reading, less attention paid to it. You know, the the sort of. Uh, the plots and intrigues of spy fiction, um, such as was written before the outbreak of the First World War, kind of paled in comparison to the reality of what people had suffered and and and, and had known about uh, as the First World War came to an end. Um, so it is. It it, I suppose it has it has less spark, it has less vitality, it has less kind of cachet after. After uh, the Treaty of Versailles, and the end of the First World War, but what what you do see is a kind of shift. I think in in the kind of spy fiction that's written, it, and it still holds to a bit of a sort of xenophobic feel, but the focus is is drawn internally now, and uh, instead of being about international intrigue and threats from the outside world that might arrive. Uh, clandestinely in the sort of doorstep of the government and society. Now it's about the internal menace. It's, it's about the menace of disorder. It's about the menace of revolution. It's in particular about the red menace uh, and and the idea that there are now Bolsheviks running around in, in democratic societies using spy-like methods to, to achieve their ends. So uh, just as, as occurred in the real world of intelligence, in fact, there's a reor- reorientation in the fictional world uh, to focus on that. Um, internal menace. And, and what that leads to ultimately, I think, is a period of what I characterize as quite sort of right-wing spy fiction. It's all about the, the maintenance of law and order.
0: Well, let me ask you about that. Isn't spy fiction almost definitionally right-wing? I mean, not necessarily hardcore right-wing, but uh, is there is there even such a thing as
1: left-wing spy fiction outside of the communist world? Well, I I think there is such a thing as left-wing spy fiction. Maybe that's not quite quite the right term, but a a sort of um, approach to spy fiction that that, um, doesn't simply uh, emphasize issues of law and order and and sort of stability and good governance and that kind of thing. And it begins to be exemplified, in fact, in the 1930s, as the decade of the 20s and that concern about the Red Menace um, uh, flows into the decade of the 1930s and a very new concern about fascism. What you see in that period is is some new writers coming along, uh, you know, above all Graham Greene, uh, who begin to write a very different kind of spy fiction, which is more um, more focused on the fascist threat, and so is kind of left wing in that sense. It identifies, you know, the, it, it suggests that the real menace to global order is posed by these militarized fascist regimes in Europe and elsewhere, as well as a fascist tendency within societies. So it, it is almost a kind of it, it's a it's a uh, an effort to beat back the sort of writing that was done in the 1920s, and Graham Greene was very very open about this that he you know despised that 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 kind of writing, this sort of sapper like writing. This is one of the British authors that used a pseudonym in the 1920s, was very very popular. There was also an American writer by the name of um, uh, Peter Cheney who also contributed to that that kind of sort of right wing writing. So in the 1930s, as the political environment changes, so does uh, some of the spy uh, spy writing changes. It begins to focus. on on what becomes, I think, one of the the sort of key themes, always embedded in spy fiction, but not prominent before that time, which is um, a concern not about the sort of spy intrigue and the external threat, but a concern about the morality and politics of the spy world itself. So did
0: spies start having an internal life then? I I would assume, and I've never read Oppenheimer, Lequeur, or some of these folks, but I would assume that their heroes are fairly one-dimensional not very reflective kinds of people perhaps i'm wrong correct me if i'm wrong but in the interwar period did spies start having doubts about the morality of what they were doing doubts about their ability to carry out the mission you know uh,
1: did they start having realized financial difficulties marital <laughs> difficulties these sorts of things i think the, the the big difference is um and maybe this is a bit of a caricature but I, but i think the the first generation of imaginary spies were were by and large patriotic gentlemen. And, and just by the fact that they were portrayed as patriotic gentlemen, they were one-dimensional. They, they were concerned about threats to their society, but they weren't very introspective. Um, when By the time Graham Greene and, and some others come along uh, in the late 1930s, there was a new concern about uh, the morality of espionage, a new concern about how innocence can get trapped in the world of international intrigue a new concern about uh, governments turning to overtly right-wing or fascist means to deal with threats. So I think the spy novel uh, becomes uh, takes on a different kind of political hue in the 1930s in the hands of some of these authors and certainly takes on a kind of new moral ambiguity. Skipping
0: forward a little bit, you've told me uh, off mic that after World War II ended in 1945 that uh, the spy fiction world sort of hit, hit the doldrums uh, the genre wasn't dead, but it certainly wasn't doing very well. But it was rescued, you say, by someone whose name probably everybody listening to this knows. Who was that uh, that, that rescued spy fiction, and how did that happen? The, the
1: rescuer was Ian Fleming. Uh, and, and the rescue mission happen, happened, I think, in an extraordinary fashion. I think spy fiction and spy films really were dead in the water after the end of the Second World War. No one was writing spy novels. No one was producing spy films. If there was any kind of latent interest, it was kind of in looking back and trying to um, tell some of the stories of World War II glories. But there wasn't anything that was really kind of looking forward to, to the world of the Cold War or the kind of contemporary environment of, of espionage. And so along comes Ian, Ian Fleming and begins to write his, his Bond novels in the 1950s, starting with Casino Royale. And Fleming, I think, really does reinvent the genre. And not just reinvent it, I mean, he really does gives it new life when it was essentially absolutely dead. Um, But the very curious thing, I I think, about Fleming is, in addition to having the idea that spy fiction could be reinvented, and I think part of the reason he had that idea was that he himself, and it's a part of his uh, biography that we don't know well, he was, in the 1930s, a collector of of rare books. Uh, he, was a, a, he was quite a student of English literature. Uh, he was a highly educated uh, man. Um, and uh, he, he was aware of spy fictions earlier, uh, kind of generations and earlier writers and what they'd done. So, so he knew the literary background and he could sort of fasten on this vehicle. Um, but what Ian Fleming was not interested in uh, was telling spy tales for the Cold War. And, and therein hangs, I think, a big story. Uh, what is really remarkable about the James Bond novels, and ultimately many of the films that are spun off from them, is that they are hardly ever about the Cold War. And that, I think, is deliberate on Fleming's part. Um, the Cold War was not his war. Uh, his good war was World War II. And in World War II, he had come to experience a, you know, a lot about British intelligence operations and had come to spin off some, some quite fantastical ideas himself about British spy operations in World War II. And that was, that was World War II and the spy world that he knew then was, uh, in a way, the, the baseline for his um, imaginings in the 1950s. But he didn't want to tell tales of contemporary espionage. He didn't want to write about the Cold War. And I have a sense that Ian Fleming wasn't very interested in the Cold War because the Cold War was not a tableau that suited him. Uh, The Cold War uh, didn't give him an environment in which he could tell tales of what I call imperial nostalgia. Ian Fleming was a real imperial nostalgic. Uh, He was a man who firmly believed in the values of, of the British Empire and British power, and he liked to tell those tales through the James Bond stories. And, and after all, in the novels, you know, the, the CIA hardly ever plays a part. And if it does, it's a very minor sidekick the, to the, the CIA, audit, the, C, you know, MI6. Yeah, the CIA, to the extent it appears,
0: is, is helping Bond and helping MI6, not, not the other way around. Uh, which progressively
1: became more and more the case in the real world. I'm sure. And by, by the time he's writing already in the 1950s, uh, the American intelligence community is, is on a, you know, a huge, expansive drive after the end of, you know, during and after the end of the Korean War. So so he's, he's writing against the grain of what the contemporary world of espionage is all about. Um, but he doesn't want to tell that story. He wants to tell a story, a uh, very different kind of story, that is partly about adventure. Um, but it's also uh, partly to, uh, you know, to give him a, a kind of fictional space in which he can... Rewrite the glories of British imperial power. Uh, so there's 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 a kind of forward-looking element, I think, to Fleming's novels, which is which is about consumerism and adventure and travel and a kind of high-stakes uh, living. And there's a very backward-looking element to it, which is which is all about suggesting that at least in the secret world, British power remains supreme, and British capabilities and institutions remain supreme. It's the reality is that that was no longer true. Even by the time he set out to write Casino Royale, do you have any sense of
0: why it is that uh, James Bond became far and away the most popular and iconic uh, sort of set of spy fiction, and why Bond was the, the became the most popular and iconic uh, fictional spy? Um, it's really quite remarkable. I mean, nobody's even close to being in that genre. Other writers have been very successful. Other characters have been very successful. Uh, Jason Bourne, for instance.
1: But nobody has even come close to touching Bond. I think Fleming, um, despite the fact that he wanted to, or perhaps not despite, but because of the fact that he wanted to ignore the Cold War, um, uh, managed to tap into a popular zeitgeist that shared that very outlook, um, When Fleming starts to write the Bond novels in the early 1950s, this is really the height of the Cold War. In many respects, this is when the Cold War is at its most uh, dangerous. It's at a time when people quite haven't sorted out what to do about nuclear weapons. And, you know, is there a real prospect of a nuclear war, nuclear exchange between the superpowers? People lived, you know, under the, the shadow and specter of the bomb. Fleming wasn't interested in satirizing that. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't going to do a Doctor Strangelove on it. Uh, he wanted to just put it to the to the margins, where I think many people wanted. Were, we're quite happy for it to be. So he sort of tapped into this kind of popular mood, um, and I would say essentially, let's forget about the bomb and let's explore other exciting worlds. I mean, this, you know, this is the the sort of ultimate expression of, of you know, the great American film, uh, British American film critic guru uh, David Thompson's notion about you know, what films are all about they are, they are a, a parallel universe of adventure and excitement that people can m- remove themselves to and, and enjoy to the full and, and what Fleming uh, realized in terms of, of how he could use the spy fiction genre he went back to the beginning he knew the first generation of spy fiction writers he read their work uh, he was a fan of Graham Greene he was a fan of Erskine Childers um, and he went back to that and, he, and, and I think he made the conscious decision to say, I'm going to take one strand of that lost and forgotten genre and I'm going to recreate it. And that one strand was adventure. I'm not, I'm not so worried about, you know, setting the stage for providing political warnings about the reality of, of international relations in the Cold War. I'm going to give people adventure. I'm going to give them an escape from the realities of contemporary international relations I'm going to tell them that they don't need to worry about the bomb. What they need to worry about, <laughs> worry about to some degree, are villains of a very different stripe. They need to worry about international crime and and you know crazy people out in, out there in the world with huge Napoleonic ambitions, and they can worry about that, safe in the knowledge that these villains are never going to overcome. Uh, which is not a kind of safety of knowledge that anybody had about where the Cold War was going. The
0: anti-Ian Fleming, if you will, uh, was John Le Carre, who was also very successful, not nearly as successful as Fleming, but, but one of the really major figures, um, spy who came in from the cold, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, and it's very interesting that his signature character, George Smiley, was really first, and to my mind, most memorably brought to life by Alec Guinness, an interesting comparison with James Bond, who you think of Sean Connery and Daniel Craig, entirely different kinds of men. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Le Carre and sort of how, how he, we should understand him sort of next to Ian Fleming and
1: James Bond? Well, one of the things that John Le Carre hates is the idea that that his popularity and, and kind of his existence as a major fiction writer is is owed in any part to his kind of counterblast to to Ian Fleming and, and Bond. But I think the reality is that, that Le Carre comes along in the early nineteen sixties with Spy came in from the cold. It is his first major spy novel. Uh, he comes along writing a story that, that is absolutely counter to everything that, that Fleming is writing uh, in the Bond novels, and it's deliberately so. And, and I think what Le Carre does, rather similar to Fleming, is also he goes back to that first generation of spy fiction writers, but he wants to appropriate that territory and, and, and put it back in a Cold War universe in a very different way from uh, the way Fleming did. What Le Carre wants to do is tell the kinds of moral tales that were occasionally told uh, by the first or second generation spy fic- fiction writers, before the whole enterprise died with World War II, uh, and he wants to set that in, in a world in which people are afraid about international politics and are skeptical about governments and are are prepared to be more attuned to questions of moral ambivalence and equivocation, and and he just uh, he has available to him. Uh, because he's intimately familiar with it, a world of espionage in which he knows that these are real questions. Moral equivocation, moral ambiguity, Machiavellian calculations about means and ends. Those are all realities of the world of espionage. He can translate them into the world of fiction and tell people a very different story about uh, the world of spying, which is very appealing, and and the the important thing about that world of spying that that Le Carré presents is not that that he manages to to invest it with all kinds of indications of reality or the simulacrum of reality. You know, there, there's a whole Le Carré language, which actually the intelligence community adopts subsequently, you know, in kind of lamp lighters and moles. And I all was going to say, I,
0: be- I believe, and I, I stand to be corrected here, but I believe the word mole, which is now an entirely reasonable word to use in genuine
1: professional intelligence context is a Le invention yes and and I suspect if we could explore this somehow it would be very difficult to do if we could somehow pin down the lexicon of real world intelligence vocabulary I think a good part of it not a good part of it but some of the key uh, things like moles lamp lighters um, it comes from Le Carre and it was sort of wonderful evocative uh, phrases that you know, why wouldn't the intelligence community ad- adopt them um, but Le-, Le Carre I think was a different kind of writer uh, than Fleming altogether with a different kind of intention he wanted to tell stories that would call attention to if you like the moral dangers of the Cold War uh, and Fleming wanted to tell stories that had nothing to do with the Cold War and in between those two polar opposites I think they attracted huge audiences but where they came to, con- you know, where they came to combat, in, I think revealing ways, was that um, uh, the spy who came in from the cold, which is really John le Carré's first uh, major spy novel. He'd written a couple of other sort of preliminary goes at this. The spy who came in from the cold was, was a publishing success that, that allowed him to convince himself that he could leave British intelligence. He was working for MI6 and and, and be a full time writer. It's made into a film in 1965, um, and and the film company pours a fair amount of money into this film uh, in terms of paying for the cast very expensive uh, and and um, advertising uh, and The Spy came in from the cold as a film which I think is, is the classic spy film It's a fabulous film. An amazing film and, and should never be forgotten and, and it does feature in the, you know, the top 100 lists of, of best films of all time put out by the British Film Institute and others but when the Spy Came in from the Cold is released in the film, it's released in, in film version. It's released in 1965. It comes head to head with the gathering momentum of the Bond films. We're, and deep, it, we're deep in Bond mania. We're, at that we're time time. in Bond territory and Bond films. It comes out in the same year that Thunderball and Goldfinger come out. And uh, the Spy Who Came in from the Cold is a box office disaster. Even though, they, if you go back to the, you know, the the posters for the film, the advertising campaigns, if they all say somewhere emblazoned uh, on the on the posters and the material that's circulated, you know, "This is the real world of espionage." You know that's how they tried to sell it. The reason why Spy came in from the cold was a was a box office disaster. I think was that more people wanted to hear about the unreal world of espionage. They didn't want to hear about the real world of espionage. They didn't want to really have those stories told about you know the, the darkness of the world of spying and the moral ambiguity and bureaucratic politics and the unpleasant nature of, of you know, the leaders of intelligence communities. They wanted Bondian heroes and they wanted Bondian adventure. The spy came in from the cold. There's no sex. <laughs> There's no real international travel. Uh, john LeCarey's hero gets gets trapped in an East German spy prison,
0: and you have to pay close so attention cars.
1: you have to pay close attention
0: to understand what 's going on it's it 's a very sort of intellectual kind of movie
1: it is it is and it's trying to tell the story very very close to um, to the novel. I would say the best way to watch the film is to read the novel first so that you, you don 't spend too much time puzzling over the various kind of zigs and sags in the uh, uh, in, the, in the film treatment, but the film tries to to operate very close to the uh, to the novel. And one interesting thing is that the film was was, was directed by uh, an American director who was himself uh, a victim of the McCarthyite purchase. And this is one of his very first films after you know coming out of that limbo in the 1960s.
0: Let's skip forward again uh, just a little bit and real briefly. So the Cold War ended 20 years ago now, more than 20 years ago. Uh, is, has that once again put spy fiction into the doldrums like it
1: was right after World War II. Where do we stand today? I mean, there, were, there have been people from time to time who called for for a moratorium on spy fiction writing, most famous of whom was, was a very fine British essayist and crime novelist by the name of Julian Simmons, um, who, who who wrote a, a, a long essay about spy fiction, arguing that, you know, in, until people had something new to say, they should just stop um, writing spy novels. Now, no one followed his advice, uh, understandably, and no one is is following his advice now. I suppose argument would be a bit um, dyspeptic and, and Julian Simmons-like at the moment. Uh, I don't think that people have found a, a lot new to say uh, in the spy genre. They're, they're kind of re, uh, re-turning out uh, historical uh, spy novels, uh, sort of shifting the, the locale. There are more sort of terrorist characters that appear in spy novels in a in a um, post-end of cold war post 9/11 period but not much new i would say about the the spy fiction genre and i think you know one of the new directions that some authors tried to take it above all tom clancy was into the, the kind of world of the techno thriller and i and i think our fascination with that has kind of died a bit on, on the on the vine although tom clancy continues to do well so I don't see anything new about the spy uh, spy novel or indeed spy films at the moment. Now, that in re- reflects in part the fact that Ian, Lef- Ian Fleming and John le Carré did so well by creating these kind of polar opposites in terms of of, of spy novels, spy plots, and spy stories. There's the adventure story that takes you away from the real world of espionage and international politics, and there's the the dark fraught spy novel, the Lacarian kind that takes you right into the world of moral ambiguity and danger and loss of innocence. You know, those are two great kind of storytelling vehicles. And they sort of bracketed the issue, if you will. And they have, and they, you know, Fleming and Le have created many, many imitators and successors in their wake. But I don't think we've seen anything new uh, that's been added to that or taken the spy novel in a new direction. I think it's waiting to happen. I don't think it's going to be generated necessarily by, by the the nature of threats that now exist out there, and those threats have clearly changed after 9-11. But it will probably be generated by the new world of um, communications and social media. It'll be about there'll be spy novels about cyber espionage and there'll be spy novels about new ways in which people communicate and there will be spy novels that will be I think moving into the train of science fiction and exploring artificial intelligence and those kinds of issues but are, we gonna, are we gonna, happened yet.
0: Are we going to see the signals
1: intelligence or the wiretapping novel? Is that sort of where you're going with this? No, I, I think it'll have to be more exciting than that because uh, as you probably know Mark, the world of signals intelligence and wiretapping is, can be intensely boring and I don't right. you know how do you tell a novel or, or make a film about somebody staring at a computer screen all day but um, Um, But I I think there are new worlds and new sort of challenges, both in terms of threats and in terms of kind of understanding ourselves as people, which is partly about what spy fiction is all about, uh, that are waiting as we kind of figure out what the 21st century is all about.
0: Well, before we move to summarizing this, um, I I want to go just briefly in a slightly different direction. I was reading the other day some of your work about uh, spy fiction, And you included a discussion in there of one of the most famous novels in the English language, which I had never thought of in the context of spy fiction. And that was George Orwell's 1984. Uh, I suspect this idea of it as spy fiction will come to as much as a surprise to many of our listeners as it did to me. So do you want to just just real briefly explain why you included that in in, in that historical essay you wrote about about, uh, spy fiction?
1: I've I've read uh, 1984 many times, as, as I hope um, some other people out there in the world have done. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant novel. And I, and I teach the novel to, to uh, uh, classes that deal with the Cold War. What really occurred to me is in reading and rereading um, uh, 1984 and also thinking about Orwell's own biography and life is that, that at the heart of 1984 is really a story about the security state or securitization of life. Uh, and it's really one of the first um, novels that tries to tell that story in a, in a kind of formidable and for, forbidding way. But 1984 is really about what happens to a society... When it when it, it turns itself into a kind of internal surveillance state, so like uh, a, a East German Stasi state, is that yeah, what we're talking exactly. about? And, and, and Orwell was trying to you know warn about that, uh, not just warn about the kind of Stalinist states that were growing up in the in in the world when he was writing uh, 1984, but you know he was also concerned that that democracies could fall prey to this himself. And so it's not just kind of painting the the, the picture of the apparatus of a surveillance state, which which Orwell, I think, does brilliantly in terms of you know, controlling people's thought and controlling people's ideas and the circulation of mass propaganda, the suppression of dissent. Um, but it's also about sort of portraying how people fall into um, uh, the business of, of spying and, and spying on their neighbours and spying on themselves. Uh, and, and it's you know I think it's a, a brilliant tale about the sort of degradation of human society that has at its heart... The, the perils of security and the perils of spying. It, just, it seemed to me blindingly obvious that this is one of uh, the second half of the 20th century's great spy novels. Well, when I
0: read what you wrote about that, it seemed blindingly obvious to me, except I'd never had that idea, so I think it's a great insight. <laughs> um, all right, so you mentioned just in passing uh, a few minutes ago the uh, a term spy faction. What is spy
1: faction to you, and what does it mean? Um, spy faction means different, uh, a different thing to me than I think that it means to many other commentators on spy fiction. And, and here I have a bone to pick with them, a large bone or small bone, who knows? Uh, I think many people, uh, in thinking about the sort of nature of spy fiction, spy films, uh, find themselves drawn to an interest and in discussion about the extent to which novels and films accurately reflect and represent the real world of espionage. And and my argument, and this goes back to the question of what is spy faction, spy faction is not um, the effort by this popular culture genre of espionage to portray the real world of espionage. My story is that it's an entirely separate, parallel universe of imagined spy. And it doesn't really matter the degree to which it reflects the reality. It sometimes is helpful to spy novels and spy films to do that, bring in real-life events, bring in real-life characters, bring in real-life institutional settings and places and so on. You know, that can help. But the, but the reality of spy faction is that, that it, what it's doing is creating its own separate universe of spy characters, spy plots, spy intrigue, and spy morality. And that separate universe is, I think, fascinating in itself. And that separate universe is also important because, after all, The ways in which most people think, to the extent that they do, about intelligence and security practices um, is very much more influenced by, I think, the popular culture of espionage than by anything else. Um, Whether it's it's certainly not influenced by historians or academics writing books about intelligence, it's probably more influenced by the media these days than it used to be. But the popular culture of espionage creates images about the real world of spying. The problem is that people shouldn't assume that those images are the same as the reality. The images have to be explored in their own right. And the impact of those images is that it, it creates a kind of attitude in the popular world about espionage. And sometimes as you follow the evolution of spy fiction and spy film, you can say that really the work of spy fiction and film in certain periods of time uh, provided a kind of legitimate cover to spying. You know, when spying is, is pictured as patriotic adventure or is, as you know, um, a service to the nation, warning about threats, then it's legitimizing the whole idea of spying in ways that matter because intelligence services can't do this themselves. They can't go out and say, you know, we're the good guys and you should support us. Pop- they rely on popular culture to do this. And British intelligence, it has to be said, has, has been one of the biggest beneficiaries of the British-centric world of spy fiction and spy film. It's really built a whole mythology in the popular mind around that. Um, but on the other hand, there are periods in the, in the creation of spy fiction and spy film where the impact has been to delegitimize intelligence, whether it's through the telling of conspiratorial stories of the sort that flourished in the 1970s, Three Days of the Condor, and, and many others of their ilk, which really suggested, and this was part of the mood of the time, uh, you know that spy services were a kind of internal conspiracy against its democratic order and were really very dangerous kind of, Mirrored uh, Senator Frank Church's famous comment about a rogue elephant, you know, the spy fictional world picked that up. Um, So there are periods when I think the spy fiction, spy film, has had a a major impact on popular culture in terms of undermining, um, uh, you know, the very work of intelligence agencies themselves by 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 creating a large cloud of, of public doubt about whether these are necessary effective, good institutions. Well, I think we could talk for
0: a long time about this. It's been a fascinating discussion, but all, all good things have to come to an end. So, uh, Dr. Wesley Wark, I really appreciate you illuminating us on the importance and uh, the history of spy fiction. Mark, thank you very much. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.